Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. So, Pam, let's begin at the very beginning. When you were a child, did you want to go into networking? Is that the... <laughs> as a matter of fact, I didn't. I actually started as a, a drama geek back in the day. Oh, well, and there it you turns go. Out that, uh, it turns out that drama and identity have quite a bit in common. <laughs> drama <laughs> and networking have a lot in common, too. I did not know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the drama of the identity management community is... is uh, Fun. It's actually a very fun community. But uh, no, when I when I was a child back in the mists of time, um, I in fact started working as a Unix system administrator, if you can believe that, right out of university, uh, installing Spark 20s for those of you who can remember Spark 20s. Um, but I in fact <laughs> You know, I started with system administration, and there's there's a lot of fun to be had in system administration, but I got hired in during the dot-com boom to work on this cool technology called directories. So directories at the time, so this would have been 1999. So we're talking next up 500. We're talking, yeah, it was XF500 and LDAP, the protocol, lightweight directory access protocol, was the new cool fancy thing. In fact, I think V3 came out somewhere in there. And I managed to get to go to Netscape headquarters in California and take training on Netscape directories. So they don't exist now-ish, but um, they were the coolest thing at the time. They were super fun. And essentially, you know, for those of you who aren't really familiar with a directory, the whole idea of directories is that they are optimized databases for people. So instead of just a generic Oracle database or some other database, the idea was that you could um, create a hierarchical structure and then store attributes about your users in those directories. And you know that was revolutionary at the time because we didn't really have people management the same way that we do now. And so I started doing this simply as middleware installation. I installed directories. I eventually started working for um, a system administrator that installed middleware-like messaging servers and web servers and directories. Uh, and it always came down to people. It always came down to who are you and what should you be able to do. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And then one day I went to a conference on identity management. I was lucky enough to get sent. And it was like a lightning bolt hit because they were talking about how you could systemically categorize access control of, of, a, you know, of an account, of a user account, and how you could make that scale to thousands or millions of users. And also the human problems behind that. Right? What does it mean for a human to try to reset a password? We all know that it's misery. It's complete, utter misery. This was really the first time where I heard people discussing how we could change the misery, how we could change what we, we call the ceremony involved in authenticating online. And so that was here around 2001. And in many ways, that was 
at least in my experience, the birth of modern identity management. At the time, uh, the, the issues at hand were all about federation because federation was just becoming uh, a topic. And so here's the interesting thing t- about directories. Directories were created to create central places to put passwords and an authoritative place to talk about people. But it was always within a perimeter. Um, LDAP is not a, an internet-grade protocol. I mean, there was no such thing as internet-grade when LDAP was created. And so when you think about Kerberos and you think about LDAP, you're really talking about trusted systems making requests of uh, a central authority. This idea that multiple domains would want to collaborate and that they would all not want to all manage each other's passwords, each, each other's people, that was pretty new at the time. So, you know, it was very fun to watch people demand this ability for domains to control their own destiny. And the irony is, and I don't know if I should say this on here, but I'm going to say it anyway. The irony is that I, I did not work at Microsoft at the time, I do now. But at the time, Microsoft had na- announced a thing called Passport, and the code name was Hailstorm. You know, from my perspective, as a brand new, green as grass, young person who was learning about the industry, what I watched were people violently reacting to the idea of a centralized control over who authenticates and where they authenticate. And again, this is all f- f- one person's subjective opinion. So I may not have understood all of the politics and all of the stuff going on at the time, but you know, people were very concerned about that. And Federation, uh, specifically SAML, had uh, you know, a lot of its growth into the federated powerhouse that it is today was because uh, you know, a lot of people wanted to make sure that there was decentralized control, right? Meaning that there was no central authority that could um, make or break anyone's ability to authenticate. Because, yeah, I remember the X.500 days and the problem of federated identity between multiple networks, right? You wanted to be able to go from one place to another place and be able to do to, to log on from that other place, even though that other place may not know who you are. And that was a really, really hard problem. And X.500 and things like Banyan Vines and Novell Network Directory Services were supposed to solve those kinds of problems. And it's almost like single sign-on for today, isn't it? I mean, isn't that very similar, a very similar problem set? It, it was very similar at the time. I mean, NDS, you know, the, the big three, I would say, were NDS, Active Directory, and Netscape, which became iPlanet, which, you know, still has uh, roots in some of the Fordrock code today, if you're familiar with a company called Fordrock, those three entities were going head to head. Um, What happened to change, though, the game uh, was actually a product called SiteMinder. I don't know if you're if you remember SiteMinder at all. Yeah, actually, I do. It's pretty interesting that you would say that. But it's been a long time since I've even looked at or seen anyone talk about SiteMinder. Yes, SiteMinder was a game changer at the time um, because you know LDAP has no interface. There is no ceremony to LDAP, right? It is a backend protocol. The expectation is somebody's collecting your credentials and playing your credentials through to the server. What SiteMinder did 
was put the front end, right? To They affiliated the login form with the programmatic uh, submission of credentials into a directory, right? And that really was the beginning of, a, of an identity management or access management product at that time. It was, you know, the only thing that existed before that was um, Netscape had a thing called uh, directory gateway, which was essentially a white pages and we all loved it and we wanted to use it, but Netscape was not investing in it at the time. And then SiteMinder came in, really just swept the field, right? With, an, with uh, finally a tool that you could just install that would do all the heavy lifting to make sure you could connect your LDAP directory. And people really responded to that. It became very, very popular. And uh, there was another one called Oblix. So they were, they were another big competitor to SiteMinder. But, you know, what those two companies did, they were there at the right place at the right time to take that backend protocol, combine it with Web 2.0, right? So they put everything into the browser. What they actually created was called Web Access Management at the time. So it was not federation. Um, And the difference between Web Access Management and federation was that the site minders and obliques of the world would put, um, they would have what they called agents that would generally speaking, sit at the application and act, you know, as the gatekeeper. Do I let them in or do I send them off to get authenticated? And so you had that, the best practice of always sending the user home to authenticate, right? Sending them to one place to log in and then having them come back to the application with some kind of credential that was going to get them access, right? And what SiteMinder and Oblix both did is they used an encrypted session cookie, and that was the bee's knees for a long, long time. But again, it was domain specific because the cookie was, was only targeted to the domain, the primary domain, and crossing domains was hard. And so, you know, in some sense, I think if web access management had figured out how to span those cookie domains, federation would probably would not have been so important. So how much influence would you say that Vines, for instance, or even NDS, because Vines is, was, from my memory, was the initial network operating system that contained any sort of a identity system in it. That was the street talk was the thing. That was what set Banyan apart was street talk. And I remember installing and running street talk and a couple of Vine servers at McGuire for space and looking at it. And a lot of people were really impressed with street talk. Now I think zero, Rockstar also had an identity system built into it, but we only had one star system on base and they were extremely expensive to install. So Vines was the Vines and Street Talk were the solution. How much I mean, how much would you say that those types of things influenced? Because I know NDS came out of Street Talk to some degree or another. Um, was a competitive thing against Street Talk. It did. Um, that was just a little bit before my time. So I don't have a So from there, you know, there was this big thing about XStep 500 and IBM got into the XStep 500 game with OS2 and Microsoft got into the uh, XStep 500 game. And then Novell and and Banyan wanted to make Street Talk and NDS XStep 500 compliant, whatever that meant. I'm not even sure what that means. Um, So, yeah, so you were, I'm sorry, I kind of interrupted there and got you down a different path. So you were talking about these web backends and these ability to to cross things. Um, so that seems to have been running in parallel with this X.500 effort, though, right? Yeah, it really was. Um, and I didn't have a huge participation in the X.500 world. So I may be missing some important plot points there. 
Um, what I do remember, though, about that time was that there was very much a separation at that time that started between identity management and access management. And the difference being that access management, of course, became the security piece, right? How do you keep people out of the things they shouldn't get access to and allow them into what they can, right? So policies, uh, Xactimal uh, came about, if you guys are familiar with that, um, what Xactimal is, is a policy language and it's a markup language. So it was XML, came out at the time when XML was king. And uh, the, the goal was really to be able to externalize all policy from applications. Um, the problem with Xactimal, and again, this is a very subjective assessment, but uh, the problem with Xactimal was that it was very complex and quite heavy. And so, and yet it is something that exists to this day. People write Xactimal engines to this day. They just don't expose them. If you pick uh, many, many modern policy languages, you'll find that, that that protocol sits in the middle. And then there is a nice user-friendly SDK or API or something else sitting on the other side uh, so that actual humans don't have to touch it. I'm kind of surprised about that because I would think that XML or some other markup language would have taken the place of that kind of intermediate piece in there in some way. There must be some reason that it can describe things that other languages can't describe. This is the best uh, debate to have over alcohol, any kind of alcohol in that, you know, people, <laughs> once once you have a few beers in you, you say the things that are probably not that politic to say otherwise. But uh, I, so from my perspective, the problem is that every application is written from a point of view that is an, a, a human point of view. And that point of view is different than every other application. And so there is no mapping. We've never found a way to standardize the semantics that are built in to you know, every one of a thousand apps or 2000 apps. There are words that are similar. So every, for example, every uh, application might have a manager's group but the problem is when you get down to security, you get down to compliance. If it's not a perfect mapping, then there's danger. You know, if the manager's group is slightly different between the two apps and you map them to each other and one person who shouldn't get access gets access, then you have issues. And so uh, to me, that the fundal, fundamental disconnect is, is that language. The human interpretation of each application is not easily mappable. And when you talk about Xactimal, the thing that Xactimal did great, by the way, is this concept of promises and obligations. So when you, you know, when you access an application, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if every time you access an application, uh, it could tell you in a very simple language, you know, hello user, this is what data I'm going to use of yours and for how long, and here are the things you must do to work with me, and here are the things I promise to do to work with you. So that's like promise theory that we talk about even in network engineering, which is interesting because we're just getting to that in the networking side. Like, I promise I will give you a VPN with X, whatever it happens to be, performance characteristics or whatever you want to make up. So that's interesting because I don't think I would have expected that type of thing in the security world. It is, you know, it certainly is in the privacy world, but but we have never managed to do the semantics well. 
So, you know, the only way we work with this a ton in identity because we work with schema and structured documents. Uh, when we send a federated assertion across from person, you know, from, you know, you log into your home realm and then you travel across to some application, uh, the way that that works is you, you as the identity administrator, who is the puppet master for the system, you're essentially sending the user to an application with a structured document in tow. And that structured document contains claims or attributes about the person. The negotiation today is pretty well one way, as certainly in the enterprise world, right? We, this, the center of the world dictates what happens at, at all the edges of the world. Um, but where it gets interesting right now is in the customer uh, world. There's a ton of really interesting stuff going on right now around decentralized identity and how we can negotiate uh, things like uh, if you've ever heard of a protocol called or a um, it's not so much a protocol as a data format called consent receipts. It's done at Kentara Initiative. They've been talking about this idea of what would it mean for every time you as a user consent to something, you actually receive a record of it in a, in a formalized standardized way where you can actually start to compare apples to apples about you know what systems are promising you what. Going back to the web backend type stuff. So I assume the next thing on the picture historically would have been OAuth. Or is there something between there where you start getting to into real federations? Um, there, yep, OAuth would definitely be the next thing. And the reason why that's the next thing is because of what happened in the industry in general. So the mobile world had come about, the cloud platforms had started to rise. So, you know, the original OAuth 1.0 arose really right around the same time that Twitter came to be. So that was, I think... 06, 07, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. It was a brand new pattern in that we had never really had these cloud platforms with these cloud APIs before. And what arose there that might be really interesting to you all listening is this concept of a password anti-pattern. No, actually, I haven't. Heard of anti-pattern, but never password anti The password anti-pattern was uh, this phenomenon that happened where all of these applications wanted to uh, consume uh, Twitter data, right? And post on your behalf and do all of these things on your behalf. But there were no tools available at the time to do so. And the only way that any kind of software that wanted to help you work with Twitter could operate was to ask you for its password. And so what happened was this proliferation of every application under the sun consistently asking you for your username and password. And so, you know, what happened in the industry is people started getting used to it. Somebody says, hey, what's your username and password? Oh, well, it's this. And you just type it in, right? And, and after a while, you forget to look at who's asking. You only know that if a thing asks you for your password, you give them your password. And so it got to the point where there was a huge amount of fraud because if you, you know, if you were an attacker, all you had to do was pop a button up, you know, or a window up and say, hey, what's your username and password? <laughs> right. And somebody's going to give it to you because they're just used to like somebody must need it. So they used to. And that's really the, the, the huge amount of pain uh, that caused the original OAuth work to happen. So they, you know, they came up with this idea of essentially a valet key, where you authenticate once uh, in a, you know, in that watched 
area. And then you distribute instead of having every single piece of software ask for and use your username and password, that software would ask for what they called an access token. And that access token could then be used to call APIs on behalf of the users. So it's a delegated authorization framework. Um, and that really did have a huge effect. You know, it was one of the big reasons why these big platforms could evolve was we had, we now had a way for active software to act on behalf of a user without having to impersonate the user. Maybe it's worthwhile talking a little bit through the concept of OAuth or like how, I mean, is that something you're familiar with as far as how it came about? Before there was OAuth or just before, like just before there was OAuth, there was actually a protocol called OpenID 2.0. And OpenID 2.0 was fascinating because the whole idea of OpenID 2.0 was to own your own identity. And the folks who really um, were thought leaders in this area, for the most part, were the were the sort of these beginning giants of of consumer identity. So you know, folks at Facebook and Google, and uh, if you remember Plaxo. So you know, there was a whole set of these sort of uh, young idealistic folks who were trying to change the world. And the thing about OpenID Connect that was exciting, but they did, they did really have uh, what, was, what turned out to be a pretty cool idea. And the idea was that you could log in with your own URL. Uh, and so the idea was if you wanted, you know, within a federated world, what we're really talking about is an authority issuing a structured document that talks about a user and sending it with the user to another authority, right? Like it's a big, heavy thing. Um, authorities talk to authorities. The idea of OpenID Connect was that you could become one of those authorities. So, you know, as long as you could stand up a server and own a domain, then you could own a URL and therefore you could make your own assertions about you and who you are. And so that's what OpenID Connect uh, or sorry, OpenID 2.0 really did. And so the, the actual marriage of OpenID 2.0 with this idea of a URL that is the, the subject of an assertion that gets sent about you, and then OAuth 1.0, which is the ability to then get this valet key of an access token that can be used to call APIs. Uh, you know, those two things were used together as really the first consumer-grade uh, social login, right? Now it's called social login. It wasn't anything that called anything that fancy at the time, but you had an open ID and you use that open ID. And so, so open ID 2.0 plus OAuth was a big deal for a while, but what happened was it did not have a reputation for being enterprise grade. And that was a problem. And so there was a second effort that was undergone, I want to say 2009-ish, where uh, you know they, they embarked on a second effort. There were two efforts that occurred at the same time. There was one called OAuth Wrap, W I think it was W R A P if I remember correctly, and the uh, OAuth uh, or sorry the OpenID artifact binding group. So there was sort of one group that was coming from the OAuth standpoint, and one group that was coming from the OpenID standpoint, and those two groups merged, and after much gnashing of teeth and stabbing of, of backs and negotiations and diplomacy, uh, the OAuth 2.0 spec was created. So, uh, and, you know, really the industry hasn't looked back 
in some sense. So, you know, if you look at the number of cloud platforms, especially that run OAuth, it's amazing. And, you know, where it got really interesting with OAuth 2.0 is that now with OAuth 2.0, we can do mobile, we can do API, we can do web, all of, you know, all of these use cases of web federation, uh, native mobile sign-in and API security are all addressed by the OAuth protocol family. In the process of OAuth, I mean, what were, you said there were much stabbing of backs and stuff like that. I mean, is there anything in there that's a pretty interesting story or is it more like, we really don't want to talk about that? No, there's, there are some very interesting stories. There was a big schism that occurred when a guy named Aaron Hammer Lahav uh, quit, quite famously quit the working group and wrote a big blog entry about how um, it, how dangerous the direction was, and um, and how you know this person would have nothing more to do with it. And so, of course, that was a major drama at the time. And you can still find that blog entry. Um, really, the the conflicts there were between ease of use and security. And because at the time the group was trying to make it enterprise grade, they were making uh, you know they were asking implementers to do more. And there were just fundamental disagreements about whether that was a good idea or not. Um, the, the other thing that happened at the time was that at some point in that process, Facebook, uh, they just finalized a version of OAuth that they support. And to my knowledge, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but to my knowledge, they still use that like version seven of the, you know, the draft version seven of the OAuth 2.0 spec. And, you know, f- for them, their their universe is large enough that people will write to that version. Um, so that, you know, that was another interesting thing that happened at the time. What you're saying there is that they have basically gotten themselves, they're basically only supporting that one version forever. Is that that's what they're thinking. And no matter what happens in the future, but... Right. And, you know, I don't want to, I do not want to speak for them. You know, I always worry that I'm characterizing incorrectly. Uh, the other interesting thing that happened at that time was that, you know, when Facebook rolled this stuff out, and, you know, I shouldn't just single them out when many of these implementers rolled it out, it wasn't HTTPS. It was HTTP. And, you know, I very distinctly remember the conversations that were, well, this, nobody cares about this stuff, you know, why would we ever have to use HTTP? And of course, the concern was the merchants in the marketplace, you know, how, how difficult is it for your average, you know, merchant who, but who might be in some of these marketplaces to, to understand how to get a TLS certificate. And oh, how times have changed. <laughs> There's something to be said there, right? Which is that perhaps it's not good that it's so easy to get a TLS certificate today because maybe they're not all that good because they're just, you can just get them and nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to me, things like it lets encrypt are pretty great in that to just be able to mechanically encrypt transport or have people do it for me as, a, as someone who isn't the expert. I, I love that idea. That is kind of how OAuth came about and some other bits of this. Are there any other interesting points that we need to talk about or to think about in this in the history of this? There really are. Uh, so the other thing that might be interesting to consider is the differentiation between how SAML was developed and how OAuth. And I wasn't involved in the development of SAML, so I only have, you know, arm's length reports, hearsay, if you will. Um, I do know that it was developed at a place called the Liberty Alliance, 
you know, there, and it was very well attended. Um, you know, there were a lot of companies very invested in making it work. Um, but the big thing about SAML, I mean, other than SAML, of course, is angle brackets and OAuth is curly brackets. So, you know, that's one thing, but the other thing that's- Because <laughs> that's really important. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like a religious difference, really. But the other thing about SAML is that the folks in the Liberty Alliance wrote 800 pages of specification. Like this thing is complete. They thought of everything and it, you know, they really, they wrote an enduringly valuable specification, but it's 800 pages long. And one of the- things that the authors of OAuth 2.0 explicitly focused on was not doing that for, for the OAuth 2.0 effort. And so when you look at, uh, and you know, OAuth is in the IETF, right? That's the standards organization in which it's made. Um, and instead of having that big monolithic document, what they chose to do in OAuth is uh, to have a bunch of small documents. So they made the specification small, and compact as they could, knowing that they could extend it. So the upside is you don't have to read as much of a spec to get started, um, but you do have to know how the how the extensions match and work together. So you know the nice thing about that is you can use as much or as little of it as you want, and you don't have to implement a whole bunch of stuff you don't care about. Um, so that is really. Um, I, I think that's probably going to win at the end of the day when we look back in history. I think that that approach is, is, is valuable because it means, too, that as we evolve, we can write new extensions that re replace old extensions without having to rewrite the entire specification. But, you know, in some ways, the jury's still out. The ITF does tend to write things in much more of a... Uh, much more of a build a document at a time. There are some some counterexamples to that uh, where things have gone like the other direction where people have written tons and tons of stuff that probably should have been broken up into other smaller documents, but it's hard to argue with somebody when they're volunteering. Yes, definitely. Um, you're right. I mean, it could very well be a cultural IETF approach rather than just the approach of those specific editors. That was my first experience in IETF, so uh, a lot of data there. <laughs> Been in the IETF for a very, very, very long time, so I, you know, have that that tends to be more, in my experience, tends to be more of the way that the IETF is going to work. Uh, it's just a matter, like I said, of uh, sometimes things fall through that you don't think about or they just happen and you end up with these huge documents that are hard to read but typically that's not going to be true in the ITF so you were saying so so is there other stuff around the comparison between the two that is important well it all depends on how deeply technical you want to get um, I think that the the other thing that's interesting is you're right the all of the ITF stuff is very much composable so with saml they defined the envelope <laughs> They defined the request and response me mechanism. You know, they defined all of these pieces, whereas in IETF, they assembled. And so, you know, another example that of sort of an evolution that's occurred is in the JSON web token space. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with JOTs or JWTs. Uh, not really, but explain it. That's fine. Well, so in, in SAML, there's um, an assertion. There's such a thing as an assertion, which is this structured document, right? It's, an, it's a, an envelope that has a header, and inside of it, you put your payload, which is essentially the, this is Pamela Dingle, you know, 
she's in the marketing group and you should let her into your application, right? That's sort of the generic payload. With IETF um, and specifically with OAuth 2.0, they didn't do that. They didn't try to create an envelope. Instead, they created the request and response mechanism separately. Um, they did not, uh, you know, when you in, in it's RFC 6749 and 50, if you want to look it up, but um, what they defined was how do you ask for a token and how do you get a token in return? But what they didn't define was what was in the token. Uh, they left that opaque. So they, they defined the concept of an access token and they left open the concept that you could extend the protocol, but they didn't try to, you know, tell you what that what that whole thing was supposed to be, right? Um, which is great. But then there was also this concept of, hey, I, you know, I know that the thing I want to send has to be signed, right? It has to be, you know, there has to be an envelope. We still have to have a header, right? And but and now we want to sign it, and we might want to encrypt it. And so what they en- ended up doing was creating um, something called Jose, which was the JSON object signing and encryption group. Again at IETF. And they they defined jots in that world, right? Of what if I just want to create a, a thing that's a structured document that can be signed or encrypted? So they, you know, they they tackled that problem separately from the concept of identity management or the concept of uh, API security. And in doing so, they kind of made something that can that is much more multi-purpose. There have ever been any thrust into using identity in realms outside of people? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) There's all sorts of stuff going on even right now. I mean, ultimately, the the device realm has been linked to certificates and PKI, which, you know, is is something that was developed before my time. It's not my expertise. um, But obviously, you kind of can't talk about access management these days without talking about X.509. And so, you know, so a lot of a lot of device authentication tends to happen because you've issued, you know, you've your device has sent in a certificate signing request, right? Signed by an authority and and um, they're able to bind a key, right? Um, a public key to an identity. So so that that would be the the realm that I would say is most common for IoT. However, lots of IoT devices need to get access tokens to call APIs, right? Devices of all kinds need to do that. And so the intersection with OAuth is uh, what we would call, uh, there's two flows essentially, um, but the most common one is what's called a client credential flow. So when I talked about OAuth 2.0 before, Uh, I was really talking about uh, an active piece of software asking for a token to act on behalf of a user. And to do that, there's there's two specific OAuth flows uh, that are most common, what we call code flow and token flow. But they basically allow you to uh, redirect the browser, for example, to an identity provider so that a user can authenticate, prove who they are, authorize, and come back. And then, and then um, an access token would be issued so that the active software can go get stuff, right? Call APIs and do stuff. With a client credential flow, instead, it's now the device that is asking on behalf of itself. So in, instead of, hey, I'm acting on behalf of Pamela to do this thing, it's just, hey, I need to access this API and I'm gonna prove myself. There are some really cool uh, OAuth bits like the JOT assertion bearer flow, which ties together this whole concept of, uh, I'm a device, I have a private key, I don't wanna use it over the wire, right? So the difference between client secret 
asymmetric cryptography is, of course, that the secret does not cross the wire. So if uh, you imagine the case where the device instead creates a JOT, a JSON web token that asserts itself, you know, and signs this structured document that says I am device 142A and sends that over the wire instead in order to get an access token. Pam, do you blog any place? Can people follow your work someplace? I spend a lot of time on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Pamela Rosie D. I, uh, I do have a blog, which is eternallyoptimistic.com. I don't write there very often. Um, my day job is but now. You're, but you're eternally optimistic about writing. I am eternally there. optimistic. <laughs> I, I actually am what I would call a paranoid optimist. It's, it's not that I don't see the disasters. It's just that I'm sure I can overcome them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think most computer folk have to be that way, honestly. <laughs> so, Donald, where can people get in touch with you? I'm also on Twitter at me, not you, Shark. Okay. I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech. And thank you, Pam, for coming on and talking to us about identity. We'll get you back on the hedge. This has been really cool. I think it'd be useful for people in the future to be able to say, oh, well, that's where that came from and stuff like that. It'd be really good. Tangential to networking, but it's really, really important, right? I mean, it's really, it's kind of a part of it too. So great. All right. Well, thanks, Pam. And I'll probably see you around the ITF. <laughs> I would love that if we could ever meet in person again that would be I know me. that would be great so alright well thanks and thanks for joining us for this episode of History of Networking subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech